Welcome to episode seven of Horrendous, a best friends podcast. You said that better than I do. <laughs> I, at the top, you always say it very well. You, you always do a very wonderful job. Don't talk bad about my best friend. At the top, I just want to say I don't have a celebrity rant this week. So you're welcome in advance, Callie, because I know you love editing through that. And everybody else, you're welcome as well, because I know you guys are probably sick of them. So no celebrity rant this week. I will say quick disclaimer. Well, you know what? You, you're going to prompt something, so hold on to that thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> If you hear the screams of children in the background of this episode, do not be alarmed. It is just my wild Lord of the Flies family running around the house. I have a four-year-old, and if any of you have a toddler, little kid, anything, you know there's no controlling them. It's just pure chaos and insanity at all times. So I apologize in advance. No, we're not murdering children. It's just a four-year-old. Don't be alarmed. Kelly, what was your thought? My thought was there may not be any celebrity rants right now, but as we talk further into our episode, there might be some later. Okay. All right. That's fair too. There might be a few. So this episode, for actually, I guess before we dive into it really quick, Callie's drinking a beer called Free Kittens. <laughs> I love that name so much. I she, do too. You always find the cutest little beers. <laughs> I guess that's the perks of working at a liquor store. Yeah, that is true. But the one thing I want to say about this beer, I got it on Christmas Eve. I'm just now drinking it. It is currently the third. But the reason why I picked that beer out was because I was then come home and be like, Jake, I know you didn't get me anything for Christmas, but that's okay because I brought home free kittens. And he yeah. was going to freak out <laughs> about it because I can yeah. either Why have... Why do we have any animals? <laughs> yeah. So I can either have a baby or another cat. So <laughs> those are you my... got to pick wisely. <laughs> if I were you, I would just do the cat. <laughs> But I know you want a baby, too. So I support whatever decision you make. Jake was asleep when I came home. So it was just like, here's the joke. Here's how I was going to set it up. But it's really just a beer. I was so <laughs> bombed. But you ruined it. Yeah. And that's what husbands do. So it's okay. That's their, I yeah. think that's their job. It's part of their job title. Yeah. And the fine print somewhere. So, yeah, there has to be in the contract. Yeah. The marriage licenses, you sign it in the fine print. It's like husbands will thwart you at every turn <laughs> or spouse, partner, whatever you want to call that. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Speaking of spouses and partners, I was talking to Matt about the episode and telling him what we were doing. And first he was like, why the hell would you do that? It's stupid. And that made me upset. So that was, there, there was a bit of hostility in our house for a minute. And then he's like, okay, well who's your favorite beetle? And I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, everybody has a favorite beetle. I said, I don't know. I love them all for different reasons. And so I said, well, who's your favorite beetle? You know what he said? Ringo Starr. Fucking Eric Clapton. Oh my God. You want to know why he said it? You know why he said it. Because Eric Clapton <laughs> slept with George Harrison's wife and he thinks that's hysterical. That's why he said it. And all I did was just glare at him. 
So, <laughs> all right. So with that segue, today we're going to be talking about the life and very sad death of John Lennon. And so I want to ask you, Callie, before we get into it, who is your favorite Beatle? I feel like I should know this. I feel like I do, but I want to hear what your answer is. I would honestly have to say it. it, it is Lennon. He was definitely the cutest until he got older and weird looking. <laughs> Very skeletal. But also the songs that he wrote were my favorite songs. I used to know a lot more about the Beatles than I do now. Yeah, well, you're actually the one who introduced me to the Beatles. So Was I? You were. I, it was the first time I ever stayed the night at your house. <laughs> and I think it was in the third grade. I stayed the night at your house, and you're like, oh, do you want to listen to the Beatles? You had a cassette tape. Sergeant Peppers. And, yeah, and I said, who are the Beatles? <laughs> and I remember you being like, you don't know who the Beatles are? Oh, my gosh, let me play the music for you. And you did. And that's how I got introduced to the Beatles. And it wasn't until I was older that I really, truly appreciated it. But, yeah, I had no idea who the Beatles were until we were <laughs> friends. So thank you, eight-year-old Callie, for introducing me to the Beatles. You're very welcome. I feel like I accomplished something <laughs> in life now. You you know what? You truly did. You had, you had the one up on me on that one. I don't know who my favorite Beatle is. If, I've thought a lot about it. And again, I really, I, Lennon, I mean, he was a, an amazing songwriter and that Lennon-McCartney partnership. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll get into that. I, I love Ringo Starr. He's kind of, he's, he's the forgotten Beatle. And I, I say that as in, you know, because everybody loved John and Paul because they were just so dreamy, but me, like musically, George Harrison and Ringo Starr, like, were amazing, especially as George Harrison got older. Yeah. And he got, you know, started ex experimenting more and he was able to actually exhibit his, you know, musical skills because he was in the Beatles. He was just there strumming a bass. But then when they broke up, he was able to really shine on his own. And he was, anyway, we could talk all day about it. But yeah, I... I don't, I think I'd have to say Ringo. I really do love Ringo just because <laughs> he's so like, he, he, he's a character into himself and he really, he just is who he is. And in a hard day, like if you watch a hard day's night, just the way he, I, I, anyway. <laughs> anyway, when I was a kid, Ringo was my favorite. Well, cause also it's a cool name. Right. And also George Harrison played guitar not bass oh yeah he did not play bass you're right you're right <laughs> I, I apologize like, I think you said something wrong there I did it was a it was a misspeak please <laughs> people do not be mad at me you're right it it was he did play the guitar and I think George I, I do have a soft spot for George I did not like his songs that much my one of my favorite songs is here comes the sun okay I love that song so much, and my mom's probably, this is probably the episode my mom will listen to, so she's going to be upset when I tell the story, but <laughs> like, not even really upset. Like, y you know the, the relationship my mother and I have. Right. But she, tell, she told me a story once that the day she brought me home from the hospital that Here Comes the Sun was on the radio, and so she has always considered that our song. So it, it I kind of have a soft spot for that song, but... That's fair. For, yeah, me, that's all. for me, the Beatles 
Now, the Beatles song is like favorite. My favorite Beatles song is completely different conversation. Yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite Beatles song. That sounds weird, but (laughs) I like so many of them a lot. Yeah. But how I was introduced to the Beatles, other than growing up listening to classic rock, like, I didn't know who sang what. Yeah, you just knew the songs. Yeah. So probably first or second grade for Christmas, my mom bought me Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on cassette. (laughs) Well played, Leanne. Well played. And she was like, this is one of my favorite albums you should listen to it I got it for you for Christmas and I listened to it and we always listen to it in the car going up to St. Louis to see grandma yeah but we always listen to that and it's still probably my favorite Beatles album I was gonna wear my Sgt. Pepper sweatshirt (laughs) for recording but I'm like nobody will be able to see it so here I am in my Universal Monsters pajama pants again and a Universal Monsters t-shirt but that's okay. We do have a lot to cover so we're actually gonna not banter as much as we normally do. There's no celebrity rant until the story is told. All right so Callie tell us about the life of John Lennon. There is a lot more than this, but I got to four and a half pages and I was like, I can't, I can't. Yeah. Sorry. Five and a half. There is a lot and there's a lot. I encourage Callie. Sorry to cut you off. I I have kept doing that a lot. So I apologize. There are a lot of great interviews on YouTube of him that free listeners you want to go watch. I encourage you to do so. There are countless Beatles biographies and documentaries I encourage you guys to go watch we're going to cover as much as we can we're going to only touch on Chapman a little bit and and I'm only saying this now because I know I'll forget to say it later if you want to really hear a in-depth coverage of Mark David Chapman's life is that if that's something you want to know last podcast on the left did I think a two or three part series on Mark David Chapman and it was very comprehensive I mean they talk about so many things that I had no idea and I'll mention a couple of those things in my part of this episode but just you know if that if that's something you guys want to know we're we're not going to really touch on his life I mean obviously we'll mention a few things from his life but if you really want to know more about Chapman, I encourage you to go listen to the last podcast on the left episode. John Winston Lennon was born October 9th, 1940 at Liverpool Maternity Hospital. From what I read during a World War II German air raid. Damn. To Julia and Alfred Lennon. Alfred was a merchant seaman of Irish descent who was away at the time of his son's birth. His parents named him John after his paternal grandfather and Winston after Prime Minister Winston Churchill. That tracks. Ever like I feel like if you were born in the in World War II and you lived in the UK, you were gonna have Winston be part of your name somehow. Oh yeah. His father was often away from home but sent regular paychecks to where Lennon lived with his mother. The checks stopped when he went absent without leave in February 1944. 
when Alfred eventually came home six months later. He offered to look after the family, but Julia, who was then pregnant with another man's child, told him no. Awkward. Yeah, very awkward. After Julia's sister, Mimi, complained to Liverpool's social services twice, Julia gave her custody of John. In July 1946, Lennon's father visited her and took his son to Blackpool, secretly intending to emigrate to New Zealand with him. Julia followed them with her partner at the time, Bobby Dykins. And after a heated argument, his father forced the five-year-old to choose between them. In one account of the incident, Lennon twice chose his father, but as his mother walked away, he began to cry and followed her. Another account said that Lennon's parents agreed that Julia should take him and give him a home. A witness who was there that day said that the dramatic portrayal of a young John Lennon being forced to make a decision between his parents is inaccurate. Lennon had no further contact with Alfred for close to 20 years. Wow. Throughout the rest of his childhood and adolescence, Lennon lived with Mimi and her husband, George, who had no children of their own. His aunt purchased volumes of short stories for him, and his uncle bought him a harmonica and engaged him in solving crossword puzzles. Julia visited John on a regular basis, and John often visited her where she played him Elvis Presley records and taught him the banjo. He regularly visited his cousin Stanley Parks and took him on trips to the local cinemas. During the school holidays, Parks often visited John with Leela Harvey, another cousin, and the three often traveled to Blackpool two or three times a week to watch shows. After Parks' family moved to Scotland, the three cousins often spent their school holidays there. On June 5th, 1955, John's uncle, George, died of a liver hemorrhage at age 52. Oh, Lord. Yeah. It, it keeps, it gets sadder. You know, I, he had a very sad early life. He did. That's why I feel like all this is important. Yeah, it helps you understand why he was sore the way he was, like... We can get into it. Like, there's some problematic things, but anyway, go ahead. He attended Quarry Bank High School in Liverpool from September 1952 to 1957 and was described by Harvey, his cousin at the time, as a happy-go-lucky, good-humored, easygoing, lively lad. He often drew comical cartoons that appeared in his own self-made school magazine called The Daily Howl. In 1956, Julia bought John his first guitar. The instrument was a Galatone Champion Acoustic, which she lent her son five pounds and ten shillings on the condition that the guitar be delivered to her own house and not Mimi's, knowing that her sister was not supportive of her son's musical aspirations. Mimi was skeptical of his claim that he would be famous one day and she hoped he would grow bored with music often telling him the guitar's all very well john but you'll never make a living out of it i feel like that's a typical parent thing to say or guardian thing to say you yeah know what i mean like 
I remember, you know, and you know this too, when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer, but my stepdad kept telling me like, that's not going to pay the bills. You need to find something that'll pay the bills. So I, I mean, it sounds really shitty because, it, you know, look, he, he did it, but I mean, that's a, like a lightning only strikes once kind of situation. You know what I mean? Right. Not, I mean, not everybody, especially then, not everybody yeah, then you really had to work hard. And not that people don't now, but there's more exposure now. That You have your YouTubes, your TikToks, your Instagrams, all that stuff. So there's more exposure for people to find you. Then there was not. So I understand her hesitation and her reluctance to support it because she wanted him to do something that she knew that he would be able to take care of himself and provide for any family he had in the future. So I get it. Yeah, you can still be a writer, though. It's not too late. No, it's never too late. <laughs> I'd read your book, your Buffy the Vampire books. My Buffy fanfic? Yeah. Let's not get into it. So embarrassing. <laughs> it's fine. At age 15, Lennon formed a skiffle group, The Quarrymen. Named after Quarry Bank High School, the group was established by Lennon in September of 1956. By the summer of 1957, the Quarrymen played a spirited set of songs made up of half skiffle and half rock and roll. John first met Paul McCartney at the Quarrymen's second performance, which was held in Woolton on July 6th at St. Peter's Church. Lennon then asked McCartney to join the band. Mimi did not approve of Paul and Paul's father disapproved of Lennon, but Paul's father allowed them to practice at the McCartney home. Also, I think it's very important to mention around this time when John was 16, he had an IQ test done and he received a 165. Well, and that's the thing. He was incredibly intelligent so i just think it's important to mention that i don't really have more on it other than no but i mean it is important to mention it because it helps you understand because when he spoke he spoke with a certain eloquence and he always sounded very the words he chose he sounded very intelligent so that that tracks for me that yeah he had a high a high iq on july 15th 1958 Julia was struck and killed by a car while she was walking home after visiting Mimi's house. His mother's death traumatized the teenager, who for the next two years drank heavily and frequently got into fights, consumed by a blind rage. Julia's memory would later serve as major creative inspiration for Lennon, inspiring songs such as the 1968 Beatles song, Julia. Lennon's senior school years were marked by a shift in his behavior. Teachers described him thus, he has too many wrong ambitions and his energy is often misplaced. And his work always lacks effort. He is content to drift instead of using his abilities. John's misbehavior created a rift in his relationship with Mimi. Lennon was accepted into the Liverpool College of Art after his aunt and headmaster intervened. At college, he was threatened with expulsion for his behavior 
and the description of Cynthia Powell, Lennon's fellow student and subsequently his wife, he was thrown out of college before his final year. McCartney recommended that his friend George Harrison become lead guitarist. Lennon thought that Harris was too young being 14 at the time. McCartney engineered an audition on the upper deck of a Liverpool bus where Harrison played raunchy for Lennon and was asked to join. Stuart Sutcliffe, Lennon's friend from school, later joined as the bassist. Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and Sutcliffe became the Beatles in early 1960. In August that year, the Beatles were engaged for a 48-night residency in Hamburg and were desperately in need of a drummer. They asked Pete Best to join them. Mimi was horrified when John told her about the trip and pleaded with him to continue his art studies instead. After the first Hamburg residency, the band accepted another in April 1961 and a third in April 1962. So at this time, that was when Lennon was introduced to Preloudon while in Hamburg and regularly took the drug as a stimulant during their long overnight performances. Brian Epstein managed the Beatles from 1962 until his death in 1967. He had no previous experience managing artists, but he had a strong influence on the group's dress code and attitude on stage. Lennon initially resisted his attempts to encourage the band to present a professional appearance, but eventually complied saying, I'll wear a bloody balloon if somebody's going to pay me. McCartney took over on bass after Sutcliffe decided to stay in Hamburg and Best was replaced with drummer Ringo Starr. This completed the four-piece lineup that would remain until the group's breakup in 1970. The band's first single, Love Me Do, was released in October 1962, reached number 17 on the British charts. They recorded their debut album, Please Please Me, in under 10 hours on February 11th, 1963, a day when Lennon was suffering the effects of a cold, which is evident in the vocal on the last song to be recorded that day, Twist and Shout. The Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership yielded eight of its 14 tracks. Lennon had yet to bring his love of wordplay to bear on his song lyrics, saying, we were just writing songs, pop songs with no more thought of them than that, to create a sound, and the words were almost irrelevant. The Beatles achieved mainstream success in the UK early in 1963. Lennon was on tour when his first son, Julian, was born in April. After a year of Beatlemania in the UK, the group's historic February 1964 debut appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show marked their breakthrough to international stardom. Fun fact, it was February 9th because that's my mom's birthday. That's the only reason I know that. She was born five years later, but that's the only reason why I know that for a fact because I read a book. I was like, oh my gosh. That's that's my mom's birthday. (laughs) Yeah. A two-year period of constant touring, filmmaking, and songwriting followed, which Lennon wrote two books, 
in his own right and a Spaniard in the works. The Beatles received recognition from the British establishment when they were appointed members of the Order of the British Empire in the 1965 Queen's Birthday Honors. Lennon grew concerned that fans who attended Beatles concerts were unable to hear the music above the screaming of the fans and that the band's musicianship was beginning to suffer as a result. Lennon's help expressed his feelings in 1965 saying, I meant it. It was me singing help. He had put on weight, which he would later refer to this as his fat Elvis period and felt he was subconsciously seeking change. In March that year, he and Harrison were unknowingly introduced to LSD when a dentist hosting a dinner party attended by the two musicians and their wives spiked the guests' coffee with the drug. Oh, that's really shitty. Yeah. (laughs) When they wanted to leave, their host revealed what they had taken and strongly advised them to not leave the house because of the likely effects. In March 1966, during an interview with Evening Standard reporter Maureen Cleave, Lennon remarked, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. The comment went virtually unnoticed in England, but caused great offense in the U.S. Oh, yeah, because we know how much Americans love their blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Swiss-looking Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's, they had, like, radio stations had record burnings, and Chapman who would ultimately murder John Lennon. He was actually a huge Beatles fan and he has been been documented that he said that when Lennon made this comment, it changed how he felt about him for the worse. So, well, the thing is, it wasn't quoted over here correctly. until well, until 5 months yeah. later. Yeah. Like at this point with how much drugs and everything Lennon was taking, taking he probably didn't even remember saying that <laughs> oh a hundred percent not i mean he was drinking heavily he was doing a lot. i mean they were all doing a lot of drugs right and so yeah i definitely like he probably didn't remember saying it so when he apologized for it he probably didn't even know like i don't even know what the hell i'm apologizing for that outrage that followed which including the burning of beatles records Ku klux klan activity and threats against Lennon contributed to the band's decision to stop touring. Yeah, and I know that their last concert at Candlestick Park, like George Harrison was another reason they stopped touring because he developed such anxiety from the amount of people at the concerts. And I think they also, when they were going to a different country, something happened... I don't, you know, I probably shouldn't tell the story because I'm probably going to get it wrong. But I know that the 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 concert at Candlestick Park was not intended to be their last concert. But after that, just because it was so chaotic and there were so many people there, George Harrison said, "I I can't I cannot tour anymore. I just cannot do this." Right. 
after the band's final concert on August 29, 1966, Lennon filled the anti-war Black comedy, How I Won the War, his only appearance in a non-Beatles featured film, before rejoining his bandmates for an extended period of recording beginning in November. Lennon had increased his use of LSD, and the year 1967 saw the release of Strawberry Fields Forever and the group's landmark album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which is way too long for an album title. But But it's awesome. But whatever. (laughs) Which revealed lyrics by Lennon that contrasted strongly with the with the simple love songs of the group's early years. In late June, the Beatles performed Lennon's All You Need Is Love as the Britain's contribution to the Our World satellite broadcast before an international audience estimated at up to 400 million. Just real quick to go back to the love songs that they kind of start that once they were able to start writing their own music you know serious music i should say because they were always writing their own music they were very much marketed as you know a boy band right like your like your one directions your backstreet boys for us old people why would you pick one direction first (laughs) because um i love harry Styles. that's fair <laughs> that's staying so, in, it, by the way. <laughs> it is. That's fine. I I told you. I went on a whole rant about it like three episodes ago. <laughs> no, but they I, they got very popular because they were handsome and they were singing songs about love. But that's not the kind of songs McCartney and Lennon wanted to be singing. They wanted to to start singing and writing about more serious stuff and so after their first couple albums which were all love songs they started writing more adult songs right that's all i want to say okay (laughs) i thought so (laughs) sorry but anytime i think you're done and i start you're like but no i'm not yeah no i'm not i'm done you you know me well yes (laughs) so Back to All You Need Is Love. It was intentionally simplistic in its message. The song formalized his pacifist stance and provided an anthem for the summer of love. After the Beatles were introduced to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the group attended an August weekend of personal, I wrote intrusion, but I'm He's sure that's supposed to be instruction at his transcendental meditation seminar in Bangar, Wales. During the seminar, they were informed of Epstein's death. I knew we were in trouble then, Lennon said later. I didn't have any misconception about our ability to do anything other than play music. I was scared. I thought we've fucking had it now. McCartney organized the group's first post-Epstein project, the self-written, produced, and directed television film, Magical Mystery Tour, which was released in December that year. While the film itself proved to be their first critical flop, 
Its soundtrack release featured Lennon's I Am the Walrus, which was a success. Yeah, I was going to say, the Magical Mystery Tour was not received well at all. No, it's not great. Led by Harrison and Lennon's interest, the Beatles traveled to the Maharishi Ashram in India in February 1968 for further guidance. While there, they composed most of the songs for their double album, The Beatles, but the band members' mixed experience with transcendental meditation signaled a sharp divergence in the group's camaraderie. Oh, yeah. George Harrison really got into it. Yeah. George Harrison went, I'm all, he went all in. Well, he was probably hoping it would help with the anxiety. Oh, yeah. He would, I mean, he definitely, in the 60s were a time where people were trying to find something more. They were trying to find something better. They were trying to find meaning. And I think for George Harrison, this offered a way for him not only to manage his anxiety and probably self-esteem issues. Right. But also it was creative and it was a way for him to channel his creativity because this, at this point he began to learn to play the sitar, which ended up being featured in a few Beatles songs. And he would go on to, he would go on to play it on, you know, his own albums. So it became very, a very huge part of George Harrison's life. Yeah. On their return to London, they became increasingly involved in business activities with the formation of Apple Course, a multimedia corporation composed of Apple Records and several other subsidiaries companies. Lennon described the venture as an attempt to achieve artistic freedom with a business structure. Released amid a period of civil unrest and protest, the band's debut single for the Apple label included John's B-side, Revolution, in which he called for a plan rather than committing to Maoist revolution. The song's pacifist message led to ridicule and political radicals in the new left press. Adding to the tensions at the Beatles recording sessions that year, Lennon insisted on having his new girlfriend, the Japanese artist Yoko Ono, beside him, thereby ignoring the band's policy regarding wives and girlfriends in the studio. And he was still married at this time, too, when he started dating Yoko Ono. Yes. They were, I mean, they were separated, I guess, but they were still married. We'll get into that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I go backwards in time a little bit here in a second. That's fine. Yeah. I just want, but I wanted to, I wanted that noted. Like he was very much still married to Cynthia when he met Yoko Ono. Yes. And I have that story and it is not great. Wild. He was especially pleased with his songwriting contributions to the double album and identified it as superior work to Sgt. Pepper. At the end of 1968, Lennon participated in the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, a television special that was not broadcasted. Lennon performed with the Dirty Mac, a supergroup composed of Lennon, Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, and Mitch Mitchell. The group also backed 
a vocal performance by Yoko Ono. A film version was later released in 1996. By late 1968, Lennon's increased drug use and growing preoccupation with Yoko Ono, combined with the Beatles' inability to agree on how the company should be run, left Apple in need of professional management. Lennon asked Lord Beeching to take on the role, but he declined, advising Lennon to go back to making records. Lennon was approached by Alan Klein, who managed the Rolling Stones and other bands during the British invasion. In early 1969, Klein was appointed as Apple's chief executive by Lennon, Harrison, and Starr, but McCartney never signed the management contract. Lennon married Yoko Ono on March 20th, 1969. Lennon had met Yoko Ono in 1966 at the Indica Gallery in London, where Ono was preparing her conceptual art exhibit. They were introduced by the gallery owners, John Dunbar. Lennon was still married to Cynthia at this time. Yoko began to call and visit Lennon at his home. When Cynthia asked him for an explanation, Lennon explained that Ono was only trying to obtain money for her avant-garde bullshit. When his wife was on holiday in Greece in May 1968, Lennon invited Yoko to visit. They spent the night recording what would become the Two Virgins album, after which he said they made love at dawn. When Lennon's wife returned home, she found Yoko wearing her bathrobe and drinking tea with Lennon, who simply said, oh, hi. Cynthia and John divorced in late 1968. Like. What <laughs> I you know it tracks for me, especially because there's a story in my part that I have to tell, and it's really shitty. And I can tell I have a couple stories from this tour we went on when I was in uh, London with my Mima. Mm-hmm. There, they have these little blue signs. I think it's really cool, and it'll, it'll tell you like if somebody famous lived there or historical, you know, so and so, what have you. And one of the homes was john lennon and he yeah it was owned i think it was owned by another beetle but john lennon leased it and he lived there with yoko ono for a time it it just it's a problem yes and i mean he yeah that's all i gotta say i mean that's really problematic and that's a really shitty thing to do right because they had a child together yeah john and cynthia they had julian and yeah it just i don't i'm not gonna go on a rant about it because it just it was just that's a really shitty thing to do it is and if i if i had been cynthia i would have probably lit his car on fire but i probably would have picked up a chair and thrown it but oh yeah there would have been things thrown but i would have angela bassett style from waiting to exhale set his motherfucking car on fire yeah that's fair during this time lennon and ono began public protest against the war in vietnam some of the protests were really weird i didn't really want to go into them yeah i know they did the one the famous one where they were in bed yeah. for 
And I think that's one of the most iconic images of them is them. They're all they're wearing all in white and they're sitting in bed and he looks like a homeless person and Yoko looks like Yoko and they're what did they call it? I guess they're sleeping or yeah. something. And then on top of that, like they tried to do another one. Yeah, in the U.S. They did a yeah, they did a lot of weird, you know. But they weren't allowed to come to the U.S. They and did a do lot that. Of we'll talk about that. Ono and Lennon recorded three albums of experimental music together. In 1969, they formed the Plastic Ono Band. Between 1969 and 1970, Lennon released the singles "Give Peace a Chance." which was widely adopted as an anti-Vietnam war anthem and cold Turkey, which documented his withdrawal symptoms and instant karma. Lennon left the Beatles in September, 1969, but agreed not to inform the media while the group renegotiated their recording contract. He was outraged that McCartney publicized his own departure on releasing his debut solo album in April 1970. Lennon's reaction was, Jesus Christ, he gets all the credit for it. He later wrote, I started the band, I disbanded it. It's as simple as that. In a December 1970 interview, he revealed his bitterness towards McCartney saying, I was a fool not to do what Paul did which was use it to sell a record. Lennon spoke of hostility he perceived the other members had towards Ono and how he, Harrison, and Starr got fed up with being sidemen for Paul. After Epstein died, we collapsed. Paul took over and supposedly led us. But what is leading us when we went round in circles? Also... When John married Yoko, he changed his legal name from John Winston Lennon to John Winston Ono Lennon because he was unable to change his surname. Yeah. Which I know nothing about British law or anything, but that's stupid. Also, he took his medal from when he was appointed members of the Order of the British Empire, gave it back to the Queen with a letter. And those are both in a museum somewhere. But you can't renounce that title, apparently. So it was a meaningless gesture. It was more symbolic for him. And when they broke up too, it was it was like Elvis died. You had people like who went into mourning because the Beatles broke up. And a lot of people blame Yoko Ono for the the breakup. You have the famous phrase, you know, she's the Yoko Ono. I mean, I'm sure her presence and her influence on John, it added a lot of resentment and tension to an already tense situation. Right. But I think that because they literally had not stopped working from the moment they formed, they had been working and traveling and touring and recording and for Lennon and McCartney in particular they almost like they were married 
And I think that just there comes a point where you just need to take a break. And I really think that's what happened. They just needed a break because they would go on to, you know, and I'll talk about this a little bit, but they would go on to appear on each other's albums with the exception of Paul. He never appeared on any of John's albums, but George and, and Ringo did. So I really think it was a McCartney-Lennon problem. Right. But the obsession that Lennon had Absolutely. with Yoko Ono was yeah so intense. Like, Yeah. No, it was a lot to deal with. So I think it was in 1969, Yoko Ono got into a car accident. Yeah. John Lennon made sure there was a king-size bed in the recording studio while he was recording with the Beatles so Yoko Ono could lay in bed and listen. Like, And before this, they had a policy that no wives or yeah, girlfriends, no wives, no girlfriends were allowed. So he was breaking policy and he was making exceptions for himself. Right. And I think that the, I don't think it was her as a person that really caused the problem. I think it was his handling of that affair and, and his ob- the amount of obsession with her. Yeah. That caused the problems. But people want to want to use her as a scapegoat. And it just, you know, I mean, it's one of those things we weren't there. We will never know what really caused the Beatles to break up. But Honestly, the most logical conclusion is that McCartney and Lennon really couldn't fucking stand each other anymore. Right. Like that that was the that was that was the bottom line. They really could not stand each other anymore. They had been together since nineteen fifty something. They really just were sick of each other and they were burnt out. They had put out in five years, they had put out more albums than that. So it was just it was a lot for them. After the Beatles officially split up in technically 1969, but like you said, McCartney announced it publicly in 1970, it didn't really take John too long to produce his first solo album, which was John Lennon slash Plastic Ono Band in 1970. It actually included some tracks that featured former Beatles bandmate Ringo Starr on the drums. The album was recorded at Abbey Studios and is considered to many to be his best solo effort. And Abbey Road Studios actually is still very much a functioning recording studio. You go there, and they have a big brick wall around it. And obviously, people go there, and they do the crosswalk crossing. I did. I have a picture. I will post it on Instagram. Um, I also have pictures of Abbey Road Studios that I'll post as well in a photo of the house I mentioned. But you go to the studio and I mean, there's just all kinds of Beatles graffiti. Like, we love you. You know, it's, it's really neat to see. So it's very much a living, breathing studio that you can still go or you can you can actually do a tour. You have to book a tour, but they people do still record there. But anyway, the Plastic Ono Band is actually considered by many John's best solo effort, creatively, I guess. Um, it peaked at number eight on the UK charts, which is actually pretty good, and number six on the Billboard Music charts, which that's not terrible either. So it was a commercial success, and so he would follow this up. In 1971 with Imagine that has the famous title track Imagine on it, which is most synonymous with John Lennon. When people think of John Lennon's 
solo career they think of this song. And it was actually his most commercially successful solo album. And the title track, Imagine, is probably the most notable, like I said, and was named third on the all-time best song in Rolling Stone's all-time best song list. Oh, wow. Yeah. The album also included the song How Do You Sleep, which is believed to be a response song to the many veiled messages toward Lennon and Paul McCartney's solo song. So I'm, I'm kind of feeling like this is an original diss track. <laughs> yeah. And and they did. Paul McCartney wrote many, many songs that made little kind of veiled jabs at John Lennon. Former bandmate George Harrison lent his guitar skills to tracks on the album, and in exchange, Lennon agreed to play with Harrison's with Harrison at his concert for Bangladesh. However, George Harrison refused to allow Yoko Ono to join them in the concert, and this led to a huge argument between John and Yoko, and unfortunately, John would end up backing out of the event because of this. In 1971, John and Yoko moved to the United States at Yoko's suggestion in order to escape the hostility of the UK press amidst the Beatles' breakup and the backlash from the fans that ensued, primarily against Yoko, because people really were convinced and adamant that she was the reason that the Beatles broke up, that the Beatles weren't having any problems till she came around. Now, while the Beatles' problems may have gotten a little bit worse when she came around, primarily because John just couldn't keep his shit together. They were having issues before that. Like, the, this this was not a thing. It's just nobody knew about it. It wasn't as public as things were now. So, at Yoko's suggestion, they did move to New York City. And with this move, Lennon would actually never return to the United Kingdom. The couple settled in New York City, first at the St. Regis Hotel, but the Ono Lennons would eventually settle at the Dakota, where they would reside until Lennon's untimely death, and Yoko Ono actually still lives there. She still has that same apartment. When they arrived in the United States, they immediately embraced, quote, quote, radical left politics, a.k.a. they joined the anti-war sentiment and became very vocal against the Vietnam War, which they were not alone in doing this. There was many celebrities, and not even just celebrities, average everyday people who were, I mean, there was protests everywhere against the Vietnam War. So for Ono and Lennon to be part of this was not out of left field. A lot of people were. Jane Fonda is derided still to this day for her anti-war protests in the 60s and 70s. So this was not something that was unheard of. And people still like to bring it up when they talk about John Lennon. And with their anti-Vietnam sentiment, they also became very vocally anti-Richard Nixon. And because of their anti-Vietnam stance and their very vocal disdain for Richard Nixon, he would make it his mission for four years to try to get John Lennon deported. And at first they thought they would be able to get him on from a marijuana possession charge he had from the UK. But the only thing Nixon was succeeded in doing was he was able to get Lennon denied permanent residency. But this would be resolved in 1976 after Nixon was no longer in office. 
that, that's a, that's really <laughs> that's I a mean, level of petty it is nixon i mean come on dude you had more <laughs> shit to worry about yeah he so what i find fascinating about this is he made it a one he had a one-man mission to get john lennon deported but at the same time he was putting elvis fucking presley on an anti-drug task force anyway <laughs> that's a whole other episode yeah okay nixon <laughs> right Whatever. In 1972, Lennon would give two of his last full-length concerts. The concerts were held at Madison Square Garden August 30th, 1972, in order to raise money for the Willowbrook State School, which was a mental health facility. It was also during this time that Yoko and John would release Sometime in New York, which included a very controversial song, Woman is the... I'm not going to say the word, I'm just saying N-word, of the world, which radio stations refused to play because of its use of the N-word. The album was not a success at all, and it, it failed commercially, and critics just tore it apart. Despite his career issues, though, John was still very politically vocal, and after the bloody Sunday incident in 1972... Lennon and Ono wrote two songs protesting the British presence in Ireland and the actions of the British Army in Ireland. There's been a long-standing rumor that John Lennon even donated money to the IRA, but Yoko Ono denies this to this day. When George McGovern lost the 1972 presidential election to Lennon's enemy, Richard Nixon, Yoko and John attended a post-election wake at the home of political activist Jerry Rubin. I would have hated to see how he would have reacted to Trump being president. Oh, my God. It would have been very interesting. Well, how does Yoko feel about it? Yoko has a lot of feelings. I I need to Google them. I know she probably has a lot of feelings. She's a very interesting woman. Nick Offerman wrote a book. Ron Swanson? Not, yeah, Nick Offerman. He's wrote a, he's wrote a few books, and they're all oh. fantastic. I'm gonna pull it up on my Audible really quick because it is worth a read. And the only reason I bring it up or a listen, if you listen to Audible, he there's a whole reason I bring this up. I promise. There's a point. He wrote a book about people he considers heroes, and it was very controversial because he included Yoko Ono. And it's called, it's called Gumption, and it is, it highlights 21 figures from our nation's history, and from it beginning to present day, and it's who he considers great Americans. And he... Does he read it? Yes. Whenever, okay. Then I might listen to it instead of he read it. He also wrote an autobiography, Paddle Your Own Canoe. It is phenomenal. You need to watch it. They're not watching. You need to listen or read it. They're fantastic. But Yoko Ono herself, she's a very interesting person. So they attended this post-election wake at the home of political activist Jerry Rubin. This would add fuel to the fire of an already strained relationship. They were having a lot of issues and there was just a lot of tension between them because of Nixon's mission to get him deported. And so after the election, Lennon was very depressed because the election results and got very drunk. He ended up having sex with a female guest while Yoko Ono was still in attendance at the party. 
embarrassing the shit out of her. And on the one hand, you feel bad for her that her husband slept with somebody while she's there. But on the other hand, you're like, no, fuck you, because you slept with him while he was married. You wouldn't leave him alone while he was married. So I have very mixed feelings about it. Like, on the one hand, I mean, that is just humiliating to a level like I cannot even fathom. Right. But on the other hand, you were the other woman at one point. So it's just hard. Yeah. Because it's like you don't deserve that. Like, anyway. So this event led Yoko Ono to write the song Death of Samantha, which allegedly is about this event. I think she channeled that anger very well. Right. So, in 1973, because of the strain on their marriage, due to his infidelity, and then, you know, adding the Nixon bullshit to the mix, while he was recording Mind Games, he and Yoko separated. Lennon moved to Los Angeles, where he met May Pang, who would be his mistress during his 18-month separation from Yoko. It was also during this time he befriended Harry Nilsson, and the two would make headlines for drunken antics. Like, one of the stories was they were at a bar, and Lennon's put, like, slapped an unused maxi pad to Harry's head. So they were just doing stupid shit like that all the time. And they were, it was being, uh, it was like on page six, you know, whatever. So he was doing a lot of that, a lot of drinking, a lot of stupid stuff during this time as well, sleeping with May Payne, hanging out with her while Yoko was in New York doing her thing. In 1975, now this is something I did not know, this blew me away, Lennon co-wrote the song Fame with David Bowie, which was Bowie's first U.S. number one song. I had no idea. I didn't either. Yeah, it was also during this time Elton John covered Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which featured Lennon on backup vocals and guitar. I did not know that either. Soon after, John and Yoko would reconcile. And obviously it didn't take long because on October 9th, 1975, their only child together, Sean Ono Lennon, would be born on John's 35th birthday. This also came, I didn't mention this, but... After three miscarriages that she had had, and with this particular pregnancy, she was considering abortion. Yeah, but she decided to keep the pregnancy, and then she was born on John's birthday. And when Sean was born, John decided he was going to take a hiatus from music and focus on being a father, which is very different because he had an older son, Julian, who he had a very strained relationship with. Wasn't that part of Yoko's, like, whole thing, though? If she continued with the pregnancy, he had to be a house husband? I did not read that, but it makes sense. So he takes time off from, you know, music. He wants to stay home. He's going to be a father. He also decided that during this time, he wanted to try to mend fences and repair his relationship with his older son, Julian. He bought Julian a Les Paul Gibson guitar and really encouraged his interest in music. And though they weren't a hundred percent mended, John did state that he thought that they would be close again in the future. 
Lennon stated that this time he baked bread, or during this time, he baked bread and looked after the baby. Yoko soon would follow in taking a break from music in 1977 so that they could just focus on being a family together. He would write more music and even create a series of drawings during this time. And he drafted a book which contained autobiographical content that would be released posthumously. In 1980, though, John would end his five-year break from music and return to the studio to record Double Fantasy, which would be released in November of that same year. Now, what I forgot to mention is his 18-month separation from Yoko, he calls his lost weekend. And I think, too, at some point during this time, he and McCartney actually did see each other and kind of and buried the hatchet, so to speak. But they would never musically contribute or work together ever again. And then I th- and Paul McCartney was always very, and he still is, I believe, very you know, regretful of this. Right. And interviews later on. McCartney went on to say, yeah, John was the real leader of the band. He was so smart. He really, like, he only had positive things to say about him. I think that they truly did love each other. I really do. I think that they loved each other like brothers. They were very almost like a married couple. They had been together for still kind of like you and I, only we didn't have a band that made right. bajillions <laughs> of dollars. But with that said, though, there comes points in relationships where you do have a little bit of strain and I think for them this was different because they had a whole they had fandom they had money they had they had all this they had a whole enterprise that's what I was looking for a whole enterprise on the line which was held together by their not only musical collaboration because they wrote the majority of the Beatles songs like they very much George and Ringo really were not allowed to contribute a lot of music. And I think it was the White Album that George Harrison was actually able to get a song that he wrote on the album. Sergeant Peppers, I think there's one song by George Harrison, and I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm trying to say, though, is I I keep stuttering when I'm saying it, so I apologize. They, I think that they did have a lot of love for each other. There just came a point at the peak of the Beatles, they just could not fucking stand each other. And it was because, again, they had been touring nonstop, recording nonstop. They were together almost 24-7. So I can understand how resentment towards each other would build up. But I, But yeah, I can see... McCartney having nothing but positive things to say about Lennon because they lo- he truly loved the dude and John loved him back. They just... <laughs> right. I did have a joke lined up for, like, with the Apple records and everything. Like, this is why you don't start a business with your best friend. And I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a podcast is like a business. It is. Because uh... at some point you come incorporated and you get an agent and a manager and then you start touring and all that kind of stuff hopefully we'll be able to do that but we'll be fine (laughs) yeah so yeah we will because we don't live in the same town or the same state right i would be your neighbor though if i could same 
Matt says we only do this so we can talk to each other every week. That's so true. I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to deny it. <laughs> anyway, so in October 1980, John would record Double Fantasy, and that would be released in November. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about Mark David Chapman. And I lied. I did remember to say this. I'm only going to touch on the highlights that I think are really pertinent to the story. But if anybody really wants an in-depth look at him, go listen to last podcast on the left series on him. It is fascinating, horrifying, and it just, wow. They, they do a tremendous job. So Mark David Chapman, who is famous, unfortunately, for murdering John Lennon. He was born May 10th, 1955. By all accounts, Chapman's childhood was filled with verbal and physical abuse from his father upon his mother and him. Chapman began to envision himself because of this as an imaginary king of little pe- or king of imaginary little people who lived in the walls of his bedroom. So he would enact out he would act out these fantasies in his head where he would order the little people to carry out these killings for him. And they a lot of people think that's how he coped. And it was the first manifestation of his mental illness. In his teens, he was a huge Beatles fan, but when Lennon made his famous Beatles are bigger than Jesus comment, Chapman destroyed all of his Beatle records and began to develop a deep feeling of hatred and resentment towards Lennon, specifically because of his, li- of his lifestyle and his public statements. In high school, Chapman read the now notorious Catcher in the Rye, and the novel struck such a chord with him, he by all reports wanted to model his life after the main character, Holden Caulfield. This is an obsession that would stay with him and really ramp up in the days leading up to the murder of John Lennon. Now, I've never read Catcher in the Rye, so I can't really speak to... I haven't either. The power of that book. But it gets mentioned a lot in these kind of, like, in movies and stuff. And since we're discussing Chapman, I also want to say, go watch Chapter 27. It is about Mark David Chapman, specifically the three days he's in New York City and the murder of John Lennon. Jared Leto plays him. Oh, God. He actually, no, no. He gained a ton of weight to play him. Like, he's quoted as saying, like, I would just eat pints of Haagen-Dazs. Like, I would microwave ice cream and melt it and, like, dip cookies and stuff into it. Oh, my God. Weight. That sounds amazing. <laughs> sounds really good. But now look at him. He's cut as shit. Yeah. He, he's a very problematic individual, though. Yes. That you love. Oh, God. He's so hot. He really is. God damn it. It's those eyes. Yeah, he, do, he does though. He looks like Buddy Christ from Dogma. Do you remember that movie? Where the, like, I they, never saw that. Oh my god, it's so funny. So George Carlin plays like a bishop or somebody with the Catholic Church in New Jersey, and they're trying to like make people go back to church. So the Catholic Church comes up with it's like Christ Wow or whatever something, and their mascot is Buddy Christ, and it's a statue of Jesus Christ going. Okay, I know and that. And so every statue. time I see Jared Leto, I'm like, oh my God, he looks like Buddy Christ because of the hair and the beard and he's white and all that stuff. Anyway, <laughs> the movie Chapter 27 is haunting. It didn't do well. A lot of, I, I would say a lot of people really did not like it, but I watched it 
And his portrayal of Mark David Chapman is haunting. And he really transformed into that role. I just want to plug that movie. It's worth watching. He is a good actor. He is. He's a great actor. He's good at what he does. Yes. He's just a problematic person. That's all I have to say. Like Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Problematic. Very good at what he does. Yeah. He is a very good, like digging deep into the role. Yeah. Like the full method. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, so that I recommend chapter 27 for people to go watch. Lindsay Lohan is in it, but it's a very small part. (laughs) And it almost made me not want to watch the movie when I found out she was gonna be in it. But her part is very minimal. She's actually really not in it that much. So he, so Chapman reads Catcher in the Rhine high, high School, and he just becomes obsessed with it. He wants to model his life after Holden Caulfield. And he, this would stay with him. Like, it would come in and out of his life leading up until John Lennon's murder. After he graduated high school, he would attempt to go to college, but he flunked out and began to have suicidal thoughts and thought he was a failure. He began working at the Fort Chaffee resettlement camp for Vietnamese refugees, which he had previously worked at during summers in high school. He got he got a job as a security guard. Soon after, he moved to Hawaii, where he would make his first attempt at death by suicide, which would lead him to being admitted to Castle Memorial High School and being diagnosed with clinical depression. He was later discharged and then hired at the hospital. And he worked as a printer at the hospital. Wait, what was the name of that? Castle Memorial Hospital. You said high school. Oh, high school. Fuck. <laughs> Sorry. Castle That's Memorial okay. Hospital. He was later discharged. And yeah, he got a job. Like as soon as he, I mean, probably not as soon as he got discharged, but very soon after being discharged, he began working there. He would get fired, though, for loud, angry outbursts. But then they would rehire him. And then he'd get fired again. And it was also during this period, Chapman's drinking increased and his fingers of anger and resentment began to grow. After he read One Day at a Time, one of the only biographies about John Lennon to be published while he was alive, he became even more fixated and resentful towards Lennon for preaching about love and peace, but living in a luxury lifestyle and having millions of dollars. Chapman began to listen to all of Lennon's albums and began to drink more and more. So as his drinking increased, his depression and anger increased. And at one point, Chapman had a potential hit list, which included Paul McCartney, Elizabeth Taylor, actor George C. Scott, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, Hawaiian Governor George Ariyoshi, and newly elected President Ronald Reagan. In September 1980, Chapman began making plans to go to New York and kill Lennon. In October of 1980, Chapman made his first trip to New York with intention to kill Lennon. I had no idea he took two trips to New York. I thought he was a one and done, and no. But yeah, he went to New York in October 1980, and he went with full intention to murder John Lennon. But he ended up not staying in New York long. He had to go to Atlanta to see a friend in order to purchase the gun and ammunition that he used. Because at first, I guess, New York did not does not allow the sale of 
that particular gun or ammunition, something like that. Last podcast on the left talks about it and explains it. But there was a reason he had to go to Georgia. He couldn't, it was not something he could get in New York. So once he purchased the ammunition and gun, he did end up returning to Hawaii and he told his wife, Gloria, that he wanted to kill John Lennon and even went as far as to show her the gun and ammunition. And despite this, she didn't report it to his psychiatrist or to the authorities. I'm sorry, but if you know that your husband is suffering from mental health issues and he's saying he literally wants to murder somebody and he shows you what he's going to use to murder the dude, you report it. I mean, it's easy for me to say that. Right. And also at the time, mental health, even now still, it's such a stigma. It is. So she probably didn't take it seriously. That, and she might have been embarrassed. Yeah. I would hate to say that, but No, she was- but it's true because mental health was not something you talked about or dealt with. But she... Especially a man telling a wife. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And she may have also not said anything because she may have been afraid of what he would do to her. That's true, too. So, I'm sorry, Gloria. Chapman would later say that he was watching TV and saw Thou Shall Not Kill Flash on the TV screen. And that the message was even framed and hanging in the apartment he and his wife shared together. This would lead him to make an appointment to see a psychologist, but in the end, he would not keep this appointment. Instead, he would make another trip to New York. December 6, 1980, Chapman returned to New York City. While he was intent on killing Lennon, he also considered death by suicide by throwing himself off of the Statue of Liberty. He checked into the Sheraton Mo- Sheraton Hotel and settled in. And on December 7th, he reportedly accosted singer James Taylor at the 72nd Sub- Street subway station. Taylor later said he was sweating and ranting about what he was going to do and how and how he could get in touch with John Lennon. It was really freaky. He later went back to his hotel and called his wife. During this conversation, they discussed getting him help for his problems and then working on his relationship with God. December 8th, Chapman woke up and left his hotel room at the Sheridan. He did not take any of his personal belongings. He went to a bookstore and purchased a copy of Catcher in the Rye and wrote in it, this is my statement, and signed it Holden Caulfield. He spent most of the day in front of the Dakota where Lennon and Ona lived with their son, hoping to get an interaction with Lennon. He spent that time talking to other fans, hoping to see John, and talk to the doorman as well. So he was kind of making friends with people while he was hanging out. During this time, he had a chance encounter. Now, this is just, I want to say ghoulish, borderline ghoulish, horrific. During this time, he had a chance encounter with Lennon and Ono's housekeeper, who was returning from a walk in the park with Sean, the couple's five-year-old. He shook Sean's hand and told Sean he was, quote, a beautiful boy, quoting Lennon's song, Beautiful Boy, Darling Boy. Like, that is that not Weird. ghoulish? Like, that yeah. is... Oh, it gives me the creeps. Chapman continued to wait outside for Lennon, and at 5 p.m., John Lennon and Yoko Ono exited the Dakota to go to the music studio. To re- they were they went to the music studio to record a song. It was at this time Chapman asked Lennon to sign a copy of the album Double Fantasy, and Lennon did. Eerily, photographer Paul Goresh, a friend of John Lennon's, caught this on camera. And I saw this photo today when I was finishing up my notes. 
It is, it'll send chills up your spine because it's literally a photo of John Lennon. He's signing this album and then there's Mark David Chapman's face watching him sign this album. It is just horrifying because you know what, and I think mostly because you know what happens. So Lennon and Ono got into their limo and left after this happened. Apparently starting to back down from his plan or maybe he just got bored. Chapman asked another a female fan waiting to see if she wanted to go waiting to see John if she wanted to go out with him that night and she declined he also asked Goresh to stay and hang out with him some more but he told him no as well Chapman later suggested in an interview that had Goresh stayed or the young woman accepted his invitations he may not have killed John Lennon which I think I call bullshit on that I think he was determined to do it. He was going to find a way to do it no matter what. Whether he did it that day or another day, he was going to do it. He'd already gone to New York once to do it. He was going to do it. Right. So while Chapman spent his day loitering in front of the Dakota or near the Dakota, Lennon had a busy day promoting double fantasy. At 11 a.m., he had a photo shoot with Rolling Stone where photographer Annie Leibowitz took the photos. And it has that very famous image it's john lennon naked in the fetal position and yoko ono hugging him that yeah that was that was annie leibowitz and that was her rolling stone at 12 40 employees from rko radio in san francisco arrived at the dakota to interview him about double fantasy and at 4 30 a limo arrived to take the group to go to the recording studio at 5 p.m., the group departed the Dakota where Lennon encountered Chapman and signed his copy of Double Fantasy. John and Yoko arrived back at 10.30, or 10.50. Yoko and John exited their limo and began to head towards the entrance of the Dakota. They walked past the group of fans with Chapman still there lingering around. Chapman decided to take his chance and called out, Mr. Lennon. Lennon just kept walking. Chapman fired five shots at John Lennon, hitting him in the shoulder and in the back. These shots punctured his left lung and his subclavian artery. He was able to keep walking, but collapsed in the vestibule of the Dakota. And at this point, Yoko screamed, John's been shot. I mean, I almost cry, like, describing it. It's, it's, I mean, how just horrendous. Right. You watch your husband, the father of your child, or anybody for that matter, to be shot five times just in cold blood. It's just unfathomable. Like reading 11, 22, 63. Yeah. Knowing what that was leading up to. Yeah. Like that was hard yeah, it's to read, absolutely. even though it didn't happen. Like that's yeah. the whole spoiler alert. For the Stephen King book and show. Yeah. But. It ended up not happening. It's. You think about what could have been. Right. But still like. You know it actually happened. You know you can't go back in time and change that. Stop it. But there's still like. In that book like details of what. Did actually happen. Like. Why he's going back and changing it. Exactly. But. To be that close and somebody shooting your husband for something he said. Not even that. Like, not even for something for he said. Just because he saw him as the epitome of what was wrong with, you know, whatever. It's just, Rock and roll. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like, I can't. 
I couldn't imagine. Yeah. Because say what you want about Yoko Ono, but she watched her husband be murdered. So after Chapman sat, after Chapman fired his five shots, he sat down on the sidewalk waiting for police to arrive, reading his copy of Catcher in the Rye. Lennon was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, apparently in a squad car, because first responders recognized his wounds were too severe to wait for an ambulance to arrive. Doctors worked to save Lennon, but unfortunately the damage was done and John Lennon was pronounced dead at Roosevelt Hospital at 11.15 at the young age of 40. And it's reported that the police who drove him to the hospital broke down in tears because they just couldn't believe it. Yoko Ono was inconsolable and just hysterical, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. I would be hysterical as well. For several minutes, at which time she managed to gain composure and asked that they withhold any announcement of his death until she was able to go home and tell Sean herself. Once she did that, Howard Cosell was the first to announce the tragic death of John Lennon during a Patriots-Dolphins game on ABC. After the announcement, fans immediately rushed to the Dakota and gathered for days outside of the building holding vigil. John was cremated, and his family spread his ashes in Central Park. A living memorial was created in Central Park called Strawberry Fields in Lennon's honor. Instead of a statue, because Yoko Ono said the park had enough statues, the Memorial Garden is a place where people can pay their respects and was dedicated on October 9, 1985, which would have been John Lennon's 45th birthday. Chapman was convicted of second-degree murder and underwent several mental health evaluations. He was diagnosed as manodepressive, paranoid schizophrenic, and psychotic. He, they tried to do the guilty by, or not guilty by insanity plea, but it ended up not working. They were trying to, and the reason he went through so many psycho, psychological evaluations was because they're trying to prove that he was not fit to stand trial, but that ended up backfiring and they found him fit to stand trial. And so he did have to go on trial. Right. Like it was premeditated. Definitely. Yeah. But, like, there was so many times he could have been stopped before it happened. Absolutely. 100%. And I think that's what's so frustrating and upsetting. It's, again, it's the same thing with JFK, like Lee Harvey Oswald. There was so many times if somebody just would have said something. Oh, and Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, he was arrested so many times. He went to court and was charged with child molestation, there was times where he was pulled over transporting the remains of his victims and was just able to talk his way out of going to jail because he was drunk when he was driving and that's why he got pulled over. So it's just, you always think about like, had somebody intervened or stopped or did something, you know, it's a what if, what could have been situation. And it's just very sad because... You know, say what you want about him as a person, because he was he had problematic issues. He was not a great person. I'm not going to say he was a shitty person, but he was not great. When he passed away, the world lost a phenomenal talent. Oh, yeah. And I think they're, I mean, it's like you think, you know, the Beatles could have done a reunion. And it's always what if, what could have been. 
And it's just very sad. So the attempts to get him deemed not fit to stand trial backfired and he was convicted of murder and he was sent to Attica Correctional Facility and spent a great deal of time there, but was transferred to Wind or Windy Correctional Facility where he is still today. And I saw when I was doing my research a photo of him, like a current photo of him, like it's a, a mug shot, I guess, for lack of a better word. The look in his eyes, I mean, even today, like he is an elderly man. It, it's it's scary. He is still in jail today where he needs to stay. He has done several interviews and he's kind of given conflicting accounts as to what the real reason was for murdering Lennon. But he's in jail where he needs to be. John Lennon was posthumously inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1987 and in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. In 2010, on what would have been John Lennon's 70th birthday, Cynthia, John's first wife and his oldest son, Julian, participated in the unveiling of the John Lennon Peace Monument in Chevas Park in John's hometown of Liverpool, England. And that is the life and death of John Lennon. Again, it's just, it's so sad. It is. It's, it's tragic and it's sad. He was only 40 years old. Just think about that. We're 30, we're 33. <laughs> we're, that's seven years from now for us. And to be gunned down when you did preach peace, like, I don't know. I just, I have a lot of things. And I, and I, like I mentioned before, I went to, you know, because of you, I became a huge, you know, I was introduced to the Beatles. And as I got older, I became a huge Beatles fan. And when I went to London with my Mima, my one demand was that we go to Abbey Road. That was my one demand. And we did a rock and roll tour and then we got to, oh my gosh, we got to see Paul McCartney at one of, one of Paul McCartney's houses, I should say. And we got to go outside the studio where Paul McCartney records his music today and was told he's very much a man of the people. Like he buys people coffee and he talks to fans and they, when he sees them on the street, like, so by all accounts, he's like a super nice dude. Going to Abbey Road was like a religious experience for me. I, and I say that like sincerely because I, I do, I love the Beatles and it was a dream of mine to go and I never thought I would be able to go. And so when I got there, <laughs> I started sobbing oh my God. at Abbey Road and my Mima looks at me, she said, What's, why are you crying? I, I said, just cause I never thought I would be here. And then I got to do the walk. And I have a really cool picture of me and my Mima doing it. I love that picture. Yeah, I have pictures of Abbey Road Studios. I have some other pictures from the tour that I'll post on the on Instagram and on Facebook. But the really cool story I wanted to tell. So the Beatles ended up buying as part of their business venture, like a theater. And they went one night. And they didn't, and they usually did not tell people when they were going. And it was a venue where people would go perform music. And Jimi Hendrix spent a lot of time in London. Like that's where he went and became big before he came back to the United States. And this particular evening, Jimi Hendrix was playing and all four Beatles showed up. <laughs> and somebody went back and they're like, hey, they're here. And 
And this is when you kind of wish, like, God damn it, like, that there were cell phones back then because somebody would have recorded this. Yeah. It would have been on TMZ. Exactly. No. Jimi Hendrix went on stage and his opening song, without having rehearsed it, he and his band played Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Aww. That without rehearsing it, he they played it as their opening song. And by all accounts, they were blown away. And there's no recording, nothing. It's all just from the memories of everybody who was in attendance there. Because the guy who gave us a tour, he, like, he, his day job is to do tours and stuff. But he's a drummer in bands, and he's an older guy. And so he took us to a lot of different theaters and stuff. Like, we got to see Amy Winehouse's house, too. But it was just a really cool story that I just wanted to share. But it's interesting because Abbey Road is a very busy street and the intersection is not a stoplight. There's literally a stop sign. And so you have these groups of people there who literally everybody's waiting their turn to do the walk. Be cliche. Fuck. If you're going to go to Abbey road. Yeah. You, do it. You, you do it. Like I even have, like, I love Abbey road. Like I have the album framed. It was one of the first things I bought for our house when we moved in. And we used to have it in the living room. I have it still. But, like, you have this, you know, this huge group of people. And everybody's waiting their turn to do the iconic cross. And when I went, there was a group of ladies from the United States who had traveled there. And they had special t-shirts made. And they had actually booked a tour to do the tour of the studio. And it was just really neat. We'll have to go together one day. But it's it's... It's sad to think about what could have been. It's sad when anybody dies and you always think that when somebody dies, what could have been. Again, mental health is not something, especially then, and we talked about this in the Little Mansion episode, especially for men too. You know, had had Mark David Chapman gotten the mental health treatment that he desperately needed, this could have probably been avoided. It could have. I guess any final words? I think that very much like in the Lump Mansion episode, I want to say if you know somebody who's struggling with mental health, don't be afraid to say something because you saying something and helping and encouraging them to get the help they need could change everything for them. And I firmly believe that had Chapman gotten the mental health treatment he needed this could have never have happened i think that we lost a great artist and it was a tragic loss at 40 years old especially and if you yourself are struggling with mental health don't be afraid to get help it's okay yeah that's fine we discussed this at length in the limp mansion episode but With all that, I will, again, post all the links in the show notes for the life, the suicide lifeline, um, the trans lifeline, all those resources. Because the resources are there and people do want to help you. They want you to get the help that you need. And I don't know, I, I keep repeating myself, but it's just very sad. With that said, I'm going to switch to happier a little bit. We're going to be recording our second B-side that Callie will have a fantastic tale for me. (laughs) So you'll have to listen to that. Yes. 
it's it's a story that I am passionate isn't the right word. <laughs> well, I can't wait for it. It's something that I would read about all day long, even though it's the same story 85 times. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it will be definitely a shorter one. I would say expect 15 to 20 minutes. So I'm excited about that. Sorry, not sorry. This went so long. It's it's it was hard to condense this story to in a way that would do it justice. So you guys are get a little bit of a longer episode. Some people won't be upset about that, except for I know the one person who sent us the hate mail. They'll if they if they still if they'll listen. be upset about that. I also did find out my boss Brian has listened to some of the episodes. He didn't say specifically which ones. <laughs> he did not provide me with any feedback, which I think I'm bet I, I feel better not knowing how he feels about it. Um so Brian, if you listened to this episode, hey thanks. Thanks for your support. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Tell your friends. <laughs> Callie, do you want to plug our socials? I'm gonna do it super fast. We're at Facebook at facebook.com slash horrendous.podcast. We are at Twitter at horrendouspod. We are at Instagram at horrendous.podcast. And if you want to become a Patreon, we're not going to give the whole spiel. But if you're able to contribute, that's great. If you can't, tell your friends. If you like us, if you don't like us, and leave us a rating on iTunes. Hopefully yeah. a good one. Leave us a rating. I mean, or rating. <laughs> if you like us, please leave. If you don't, please don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> but if you give us a one star, I mean, at least tell us why it's a yeah. one star so we, we can improve. feedback, yes. But if you want to become a Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash horrendous podcast. Everything will be in the show notes and... What else? Anything else? No, that's it. All right. Listen to our first B-side. It's live now. Yeah, do that. And also, this has been horrendous. Thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends. Tell your mama. Tell everybody. Tell your mom. Tell your grandma. Tell your friends. Friends. Your kids. Tell your friends, grandma. <laughs> that's all I have. Your friends' moms. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Bye, that's guys. ridiculous. While you're still here, I would like to tell you about two new partners that Horrendous Podcast has. The first one is The Mud Honeys, and they sell really awesome t-shirts and a lot of other things. All the shirts that they make, they print in-house. And it's really awesome. Check them out. The website is www.shopthemudhoneys.com and use discount code BESTIES at checkout for 15% off. The second one is Malicious Women Company, and they have really awesome candles and bath bombs and cosmetics, all those things I love. Check them out at www.maliciouswomenco.com and use discount code HORRENDOUS10 for 10% off your order.
We hope you love these companies as much as we do, and please be sure to check them out. Thank you.